If you survived last week's magnum opus on employer brand architecture, thank you. That was impressive. Give yourself a pat on the back. That was a big one. Uh, but we're going to do something a little smaller, something not nearly as comprehensive. We're going to talk about motivations and why people do what they do, mostly so that you can figure out how to talk to attract the people that your company wants the most of. That's what we're going to deal with today when we get back. Hey everybody, James Ellis here. Welcome to The Talent Cast, Season 2, the podcast audiobook version of Talent Chooses You 2.0, the revenge of some sort. I take it. I don't know who I'm getting revenge on. The entire season is brought to you by RecruitmentMarketing.com, the community for recruitment marketing professionals. So go to RecruitmentMarketing.com to sign up, see what's going on there. You can do and ask me anything because if you haven't survived, if, if, if last week's hour-long <laughs> treatise wasn't enough for you, you can always ask me questions. So go sign up, uh, go see what they have to, to offer. I also have a newsletter, employerbrand.news or employerbrandheadlines.substack.com. It's free. It's every Monday. Go sign up, go tell a friend, share it, you know, newsletter stuff. So let's dive into it. As candidates are drawing conclusions about what it's like to work at your company based on that whole architecture thing and all the things the company does, you got to ask how those people are absorbing those brand impressions. There's a, there's a line about, uh, I think it's uh, George Bernard Shaw, the illusion of communication is that it's happened. Just because you said it doesn't mean that's what they heard. That doesn't mean what they absorbed. Now, I don't mean what social media channels will be more believable, but really deeper down. How do people make decisions on the information being shown to them around employer brand? So let's start here. Is there a job you would consider taking, even if it meant a 5% salary cut? Is there a great paying job you'd reject because the company mission didn't align with your worldview? I'm willing to bet you can say yes to both of those questions, destroying the idea that the only thing people care about or weigh when they consider a new job is salary, because that's just not true. Salary is part of a larger kind of set of considerations. It's one piece of the puzzle. Now, don't get me wrong. People need to get paid a fair wage for what they do, and taking a job shouldn't mean that they can't pay their rent or their mortgage. And unless they were in a tenuous situation, no one will take that job. Because if they do, eh, they're not sticking around. They're going to leave the second something else materializes that pays closer to a market rate. Let's just be fair. If you take advantage of people, you should not be surprised when they ditch you as soon as they possibly can. It just seems fair to me. It just seems normal. I mean, I don't think I'm saying anything crazy there. Simple as that. But if we assume that salaries for a given role followed a standard deviation bell curve, right, that some pay a little more and some pay a little less, but mostly they clump up in the middle, any given job title should expect a base salary at pretty much every company. That doesn't mean, you know, every single company. There are companies that try to take advantage and there are some other companies that pay a lot more because they don't offer the same kind of benefits package or they don't offer, they're, they're kind of compensating for some other gaps in what the total offering might be, right? And to be clear, this means that your hiring manager's thinking that the recruiter can just find an unpolished gem of employee who doesn't know the going rate of their own is not a successful hiring strategy, right? There's no one out there who doesn't realize how valuable they might be. There's plenty of data out there, so don't try and think you can do that. So if we assume that all jobs pay roughly the same, and this sounds like an economics professor with perfect information, yada, yada, how does someone choose between different roles? 
Now, the fact that you would take a job that doesn't pay the most means that there's lots of other underlying reasons that are not directly connected to salary. You might choose a job because it gives you better work-life balance. You might choose it because it has a substantially better commute, right? You care about the time given. You might choose it because it rewards your intrinsic desire to build something or build something new. You might choose it because it's going to give you less interference as you pave your own path forward. You might choose it because your brand status in the industry feeds your ego. Let's be fair. Egos are real. We're all motivated by different things. Some might want fame. Some might want supportive work environment. Some want to save the world and some want a big stack of cash. Some want to build a career. Some want to show off. Some want to be taken care of. The DMV manager and the hedge fund manager are equally talented despite having very different roles and very different salaries. But each will be driven by very different motivations and thus seek out and satisfy those motivations. No one looks at a job for the DMV to make a lot of money and no one looks at a job at a hedge fund because it's a stable and calm environment. I mean, do you know a teacher? Are they stupid? Because technically, if they choose a job in a world where everything is driven by salary, they must be fools to take such a hard job with low pay. But if you know a teacher, you know that they're not fools. They're not stupid in any way, shape, or form. They just care more about working with kids than in cashing out at the age of 50 or in the kind of car they drive. These are people who are driven to grow young minds, who want stability, who want to make sacrifices every day because it helps people learn better than maybe an extra 100 bucks a week would. It's not that they don't want more money. They would take money, more money in a heartbeat. It's just that when they satisfice at a certain level, what they want beyond that is something else. Anyone's person's motivations might be all over the map. They might be a complicated set of overlapping ideas and drivers, depending on the time of day, who they're dating, uh, if the stock, mar- stock market had a good day or a bad day. Um, there are all sorts of things, right? They suddenly need to spend money on private school. That's going to impact their drivers. And thinking about the motivations of a large group of people, just exponentially more complicated. So it makes a little bit of sense to establish a very basic framework of motivations in order to understand who we want to talk to. Now, there are a lot of different ways to bundle up this kind of idea. And and, and you could probably Google a whole bunch of different culture motivation frameworks. Go for it. Go nuts. Harvard Business Review has one that's pretty good. And that's what I started with. It starts with this idea that there are eight kinds of company cultures. Now, the framework I use, which was deeply influenced by Rob O'Keefe over at, uh, I guess it was TMP then, it's Radency now, are based on this idea that people have core intrinsic human motivations. Now, those motivations are things like autonomy, advancement, feeling of purpose and meaning, knowledge, progress, accomplishment, recognition, social interaction, and safety. These are the things that drive people to act. Regardless of job, regardless of of situation, this could be the reason they choose the, the show they want to watch. It could be the reason they decide to go to a baseball game. It could be the reason they decide to volunteer somewhere. It's a, it drives their personal human motivation. Connect that to our world and their professional motivation, and you can see a lot of one-to-one relationships. Autonomy, if that's a basic human motivation, leads to empowerment. Let me do what I want to do. Empower me to do the thing I want to do. Advancement, human motivation, leads to innovation. I want to make something new. I want to advance this idea. And we can go down the line. In fact, that's what we're going to do. Empowerment, 
people who wish to have roadblocks removed, who need and respond to less managerial oversight, they are people who want to be given as much authority, responsibility, and opportunity as possible in order to work at their own pace, to their own standards. This candidate may have been frustrated in other jobs and are looking to prove themselves, to say that I actually know what I'm talking about, that I have a lot to offer, and maybe the way I want to do it may not be how you do it, but there's value in that. Empower me. The next motivation is innovation. They want the access or, or want the expectation to create cutting edge innovation in whatever space they're working in. It doesn't matter. It could be a culinary school. It could be uh, space travel. For some, it's the ability to use the latest and greatest tools in their work, to feel like they're on the cutting edge of whatever the space they're in. For some, it's the, a reward structure based on what you build and achieve, how well you're breaking new ground. This is a willingness by a company to manage high levels of risk, right? These are bets being placed. The company wants to invent something that's never been done before. It's a good chance it might fail. Someone who cares about innovation has to also care and realize that there is a level of ambiguity that comes along with it. The third core motivation is mission and values. Now, separate from the corporate mission and values, this is what a person cares about. These are people who have internal values that align with those of the company, where that's important to them, where everybody's in it to save the world, save the ferns, save the rights of others, save the university, save the pile of cash, whatever it is, they're there for the same reason, that why I do this is similar to why you do this. These people are very focused on doing great work by joining the ranks of others who feel the same. There's a sense of community that comes by saying we are all sailing to the same North Star and we are all driven intrinsically and internally for that part. They want to know that their work is serving some kind of purpose, maybe just commerce, but maybe something much, much bigger. Fourth motivation, development. This is a structural focus on training, education, coaching, mentoring. These are people who want to be rewarded for more certifications, for more degrees. These are people who see their own growth and satisfaction as a function of how much training they can get. They want to know that development isn't just on offer. And I see a lot of companies say, oh yeah, we offer a lot of de professional development. How? We'll talk about that when you get hired. Right, whatever. But they want to be in a place where everyone is moving in that same direction. They want to be encouraged and are expected to get that certification. I'm not going to beat up on HR, but I've never seen an industry with more certifications next to their name or an industry in which any problem can't be solved by another certification. They're very development folks. Now, that development isn't always intrinsic. It's not just so I can get it. It's because they know it serves their broader career goals, which leads into the fifth one, career. A focus on moving up the career ladder. A willingness to take a role that supports promotions down the road. A willingness to kind of take one for the team now because it serves them individually way down the road, right? It's that desire to get on a partnership track or a tenure track. A long-term goal of being the COO or even the CEO. This is a candidate who wants to know how this job is going to move them forward in title, either short-term or long-term. Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? 
that through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. Six one, performance. The ability of someone who is at the best in their space to show what they can do, to show how good they can be, to be surrounded by other people who perform at the highest standards, to push and be pushed by them, to discover new levels of performance. These are candidates who want to be all they can be and show it off. Think of Olympic athletes. They're not there for the cash. They're not there for support. They're there to push themselves as hard and as fast as they can. They care about performance. Salespeople very often are in the same bucket because they know they're good salespeople, but if they're surrounded by people who push them to be their best, they can achieve the most. The next one is status. People who derive satisfaction from how impressed other people are by the company they work for or the title they have for being seen as being at the top of the pecking order, who see the perks and salaries as a function of working at the quote unquote best company. These are people who are much more defined by what others think about them, allowing you to leverage that ego to spur action. None of these are bad. You just need to understand what motivates people to figure out where the switches are to get them attracted to you. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Second to last one, support. Employees who are looking for a place to be supported where they can do their best work with a minimum of uncertainty, with a minimum of risk, with a minimum of politics. These are people who don't enjoy the spotlight as much and are much more comfortable succeeding by helping everyone around them succeed. These are the people who say there's no I in team. It's all about the team. This sounds fuzzy bunny. It sounds like, oh, what a bunch of losers. No, there are plenty of great teams who are very much we first kind of teams. And there are people who know that they have, oh, think of uh, think of musicians, not in a rock band, but an orchestra. The third violinist will never be heard individually as the violinist, right? They have to take that job knowing that they're filling a role that supports the larger idea of the music and the piece itself. They care about support. The last one is stability. And because I ended up grouping kind of autonomy and responsibility as empowerment, there's a gap that happens because of that. And some people are just not driven by growth, but by safety and security. Some call it loss aversion, or some people call it fear. I don't, I don't wanna get into that. But some slice of the world thinks that working for the county or the post service is a dream job because it provides security. They are not necessarily uh, passionate about the mail. They are passionate about knowing that at five o'clock their day is done, that they're not gonna get fired just because Bob doesn't like them. They're, there's meritocracy and tests you use and take to get promoted that everybody knows and is evaluated by the exact same rules. There's not a lot of change, right? This is a job that is almost the same every day, day in, day out. It's managed by well-defined processes and metrics, and it's going to be around next year. These are not people who are worried about losing their job next year because the industry might shift. They know they're going to spend their 25 years here, and then they walk away. Simple as that. It's a career. So first off, do you recognize yourself in any of these motivations? Perhaps 
you see what gets you out of bed in the morning. Or perhaps you immediately see that because your motivations and those of your company you work for are misaligned, you're often frustrated by work. Hi, my name is James Ellis and I'm raising my hand at that statement. <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough. When you understand what you care about and you understand what the candidate cares about and then you understand what the company cares about, you can see where the gaps are. But the litmus test remains. Would you be willing to take a 5% pay cut if you knew that taking that new job would mean more support and more things that support your motivations? Well, then that's the one that drives you. These motivations are in no way mutually exclusive. Just make that crystal clear. You can and are often motivated by multiple things. And that goes both ways. A company is never as simple as the single motivation they say they care about. Far more complicated, especially because most companies have lots of people in them. But in order to establish yourself in the talent market, you start by having a conversation with a candidate that's focused around a core motivation. You don't sell a car by talking about every little feature. You talk about it based on a core position. Being focused on your mission doesn't have to make you any less supportive of stability, but in a crowded marketplace, having a single clear message to spark a conversation drives attention and it drives attraction. If you're telling a story about performance to attract attention, you can talk about how supportive environment you are later on. Once you've gotten them hooked in, you can kind of flesh things out down the road. Now, no one motivation is the best and no one motivation tracks the best talent. I'm a big believer that talent is fairly well equally spread across all those different motivations. Maybe not perfectly equally, but enough, right? People are driven by very different things. Some people are driven by value. Some people are driven by ego. Some people are even driven by spite. Uh, but that doesn't make you less or more talented. However, if you're a values-driven company, you probably aren't going to get a lot of value of the person driven by ego or spite. It's just not how that's going to work. So when I work with companies, their initial instinct when they see this kind of list is to want to be all these things. <laughs> they want to be all things to all people. But to employees who embrace the values, who want to be empowered by the best, but also appreciate a supportive culture, that's not quite how that works. We go back to the Camry example because apparently that's what I do. We choose the car because it's safe and reliable. Is it cheap? Eh, maybe yeah, maybe no. Is it expensive? Not particularly. Is it fast? Not really. Is it attractive? <sighs> Enough. But the car can be a lot of different things. And a brand manager wouldn't want to build a campaign around it being cheap, undercutting a sense that it's well-built, which is what it's really about, or that it's expensive, which might be a higher value of other cars in its class. Now compare the Camry against a Volvo. Is a Volvo fast? I don't know, maybe a little bit, sorta, but not really. Affordable, I guess. Probably goes a long time without repairs and looks pretty good, but okay. But for decades, every commercial in a Volvo focused and reinforced its commitment to safety. Sure, it might've been a reliable and affordable car, but everybody else was talking about that. So they focused on talking about safety, a thing that no one was talking about. That's how they plant the flag. Now, in return, people saw the Volvo as the safest major name car, regardless of whatever crash tests might say. And I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying beyond that. But if they're looking for a safe car, they started with the same brand. It was the hook that got people in the door. And once those people were inside, they got to learn about reliability and affordability and the rest of the package. But the hook is simple. So for every motivation, there's a dark side. Right? Every weakness becomes a strength. Every strength becomes a weakness. Stability and safety tends towards a sense of stagnation. 
Status tends towards cutthroat behavior. Performance is often not aligned to teamwork. So if you claim that you're motivated by something and a reward is a given driver, you got to be aware of what the dark side is, just so you're aware of it. For example, most startup companies tend to attract risk-comfortable people. But there's an assumption that the willingness to do whatever it takes to make the company succeed is in the long term that leads to long days and very little free time. You expect to be kind of obsessed with that company. And for people, that's a compromise they're willing to take because they're also in innovation. They're willing to stay focused. But imagine if you had a startup that made it very clear that no matter what, everyone would be expected to go home at five. Now, you may not be any less innovative. You may not be any less status oriented, but your point of differentiation is now all about work-life balance, thus attracting a different kind of talent. There aren't any less talented just because they won't stay at the office for 18 hours, but they're attracted to what makes you different. This is the core of brand differentiation. It's not about trying to be like everybody else or playing the follow the leader, but about establishing and communicating over and over and over and over again what makes you and the job and the company or the product special. In effect, you can either be the most something in the space or you can be the only one in a space. That's the only way to win. In a startup story we talked about, you can either be a company who stops at nothing to make innovation happen, and I believe we can point to some companies for whom that would be a perfect example, right? They're most innovation focused, they're more willing to break rules, what have you. Or you could be the company where people go home at a reasonable hour, and that would make you the only company who is that level of support focused. And if you can't own either one of those spaces, you really can't compete effectively because you're just yet another. But if you can own one of those spaces, you're going to be able to compete with anybody. You don't want to be stuck sounding like every company who is neither the best at something nor the only one who does something. That's how you fall back into that commoditized brand space where you lose all of your advantage because you sound like everybody else. All right. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Go subscribe to my newsletter over at employerbrand.news. Go hang out at recruitmentmarketing.com, the community for recruitment marketers. And I will see you next week. We're going to go deep on the EVP. Bye. best known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.